beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've used the example a few times of what it looks like if a great and mighty king is living next door to you. It's going to show in how the, the house or the, the building in which he lives is, uh, is organized and how it's ornamented. It will show his glory and his power. You can tell what kind of person lives somewhere by the way that the house looks often. And we've been applying that to the Christian life. If the Lord Jesus, if God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has moved into our lives, into our hearts, and if we are temples of the Holy Spirit and He dwells in us, then that's going to look like something for us and for the people around us. So today we, we come to the last three words of Paul's description in Galatians 5 of the fruit of the Spirit. And these nine words can be seen as various beautiful divine ornaments which ornament the habitation of the Spirit of God here in this world, and that is the church and individually believers. We, we come to the last three words, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And what we'll do is, what we've been doing all along, we'll consider each one of those words, and then we'll step back and we'll summarize what's been going on in verses 22 and 23. So let's start with the word faithfulness here. The word faithfulness that we have here in our text is actually most of the time translated in the New Testament as faith. It's a very interesting word because it can mean faith or faithfulness. It can mean having trust, that's having faith, or being worthy of trust. It goes two ways. It can mean full of faith, in other words, that you believe, or it can mean faithful, in other words, that people can believe in you, they can count on you, and those things go together. You can't be a true believer without being someone that people can't trust, because faithfulness is the very character, a part of the very character of God. And you remember we just read it in Psalm 145. If we turn back to Psalm 145 and we look at verse 13 at the end of that verse, then that's what the psalmist says about God. 145, 13, at the end, the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. And the very first time that we get this word in the, in the Bible, in the Greek Old Testament, we find it in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and it is attributed to God. Deuteronomy 7 verse 9, which is on page 152 of your Bible, 7 verse 9 of Deuteronomy, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God is faithful. God is a God you can count on, you can trust. He does what he says he's going to do. He is who he says he is. He keeps his promises. You can count on him. You can depend on him. You can trust him. God is faithful. And if we turn to Psalm 31, Psalm 31, and we look at the first five verses 
of Psalm 31. That's on page 461. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. You see the theme here. Refuge, rock, dependable, solid. He's a, one who we can depend on. And then look at verse 5. Into your hand. I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. God is such a true and trustworthy rock and, and refuge and Savior that we can just commit our spirit. We can just commit our lives. We can just let go and fall into his arms. And we know he will catch us. You know, just this past week, we had another apartment fire in St. Albert, and a number of children had to jump from the balcony to people below. This happened a few days ago. And those little kids had to trust that those people below on the ground saying, jump, jump, that they were going to be able to catch them. And so they jumped, and they were caught, praise God, they were saved. And that's the, the biblical picture of trust. We believe that God is able to and is willing to catch us because he is trustworthy. Look at Psalm 111 now. Psalm 111 verse 7. That's on page 509. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. So look carefully here because it describes God not just being trustworthy in what he says, but also in what he does. The works of his hands are faithful. That means his, his work of creation. It's trustworthy. You can count on it. And that's why we have modern science, because in the 16th and 17th centuries, Christian believers who were scientists, they they studied the universe expecting it to be a universe which is orderly and predictable and which will, that what happens today will happen in the same way tomorrow. That it's not just a random chaos as the evolutionary theory would have us believe it is. And because they believe that God is faithful in his works, they were able to build modern science, which we still benefit from in so many ways today. The works of his hands are faithful and just, not just in creation, in the cycles of the seasons, and in all the laws of physics, but the faithfulness of God is evident in his providential oversight of history. In all the events of history, we can trust that God is sovereign, that nothing happens that is outside of his sovereign power. And so it's his works that are dependable and trustworthy in creation and providence. And also look at verse 111, verse 7, the end of it now. All his precepts are trustworthy. So not only what God does, 
but also what God says, what he commands. It's trustworthy. If he says, don't do this, then we know it's bad for us, even though we can't quite understand why sometimes. That's what Adam and Eve should have held on to. We're like, we're not quite sure why that fruit is so bad for us, God, but you said it is, so we, we believe you. You're trustworthy. And they made the mistake of not seeing God's word as trustworthy. And when God says something is good, then even though we think, well, I'm not quite sure, Lord, how this can be good for me, but you tell me it is, and you are trustworthy. I can count on you. I can build my life on what you say. Because God cannot be not faithful. God cannot be not trustworthy. Turn to 2 Timothy 2.13 for a second. 2 Timothy 2.13, that's on page 995. And this is what the scripture says about God. If we are faithless, and we are so often, aren't we? He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Don't we often do that? Somebody hurts us, somebody betrays our trust, somebody doesn't keep their word with us, and we think, well, if you're not going to keep your word with me, I'm not going to keep my word with you. And so you break trust with me, I break trust with you. God doesn't do that. God cannot do that because that is not who he is. God is, by definition, he is faithful, unchangeably faithful. And that's why we can believe no matter what, we can hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, as the apostle says to the Hebrews in chapter 10. Why can we do that? Why can we believe? Why can we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, without doubt? Well, he says, because he who promised is faithful. That's why. Even when everything in our life seems to say it's just not true what God says. Even if everyone around us says, you know what, God says this, but look, it's obviously not true for you. Then our response is, God said it, let God be true, though every man be a liar. God said it, that's good enough for me. That's how faith works. We don't just trust God when we can figure out what he's doing. We don't just trust God when we agree with him. We don't just trust God when we feel, yes, I kind of like what's going on here. No, we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering because we know he is faithful. That's why in Hebrews 11, the apostle speaks about Sarah who, who believed something unbelievable. She believed that God would fulfill his promise. She considered him faithful who had promised. And we'll talk more about that this afternoon as we hear the gospel of the word Amen at the end of the Lord's Prayer. We'll deal more with the, the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of God this afternoon. So, so this faithfulness of God rubs off on his children. And we can imagine holding a piece of metal in a very, very, very hot, white hot fire. If you hold the piece of metal in your bare hand for long enough, that metal's going to warm up and it's going to become red hot and perhaps white hot. And if you're still holding onto it, which you shouldn't be, that heat is going to transfer to your hand as well. 
And that's the way it is with the very character of God. The more that we are united by faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit to Christ, to, to God, the more his character begins to permeate and transform and, and change who we are. We, be, we begin to, to reflect and to radiate the very character of God to those around us. And so when that happens, because God is faithful, we are more and more faithful as well. And that in two directions. I mentioned already the word here in our text can just be translated simply as faith. So it can be having faith or being trustworthy, being faithful. And so it's two directions. It's a very interesting Greek word. It's, it's in the direction of God and in the direction of those around us. With respect to to God, the more we are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit, the more we reflect that in faithfully following God's Word. And if you turn to Matthew 25, 23, you see what that looks like. It's a description of the Christian life. Matthew 25, 23, it's the parable of the talents and God gives to his servants, the king gives to his servants various talents, and they ought to use them faithfully for him. And then if you look at 2523, that's page 831, one of the servants hears this from his master. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much and enter into the joy of your master. So this is a picture of a child of God who has received gifts and talents from God. He's received from God, and then he gives back to God what he has received. And then God calls that faithfulness. And he rewards that faithfulness. He rewards what he gives it's very clear in our text, isn't it, that, that faithfulness is not something that comes from us. It's not something that we say, hey, God, you've done your bit, and now I'm going to give you something back, my faithfulness. No, faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit. It is a gift of God. It is something that the Lord works in us. And even though it's a divine and sovereign and gracious gift, God still rewards it in us. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant, Enter into the joy of your master. So this faithfulness, a life of faithful obedience to our master, is a gift of God. And it is something that is not simply a description of what we do, but it is a description of who we are. Faithfulness is not keeping all the rules. Faithfulness is not doing all the right things. Faithfulness is not being the person who never makes a mistake. No, faithfulness is being changed so that we are like Christ. It's, the, it's something which comes from inside us, not something which is imposed externally by law. And it is so much a part of who we are that nothing can stand in the way, not even death, 
can get in the way of our faithfulness. If you turn to Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, 2 verse 10 of Revelation, that's page 1029. And the, the Lord says this to the church in Smyrna, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's the kind of faithfulness the Holy Spirit, and only the Holy Spirit, can give. A faithfulness even unto death. A faithfulness which says God is True, God is trustworthy, God keeps his promises, and I am willing and I am ready to give up everything that I have, to give up everything that I am, to give up my very life itself, to build everything on that rock-solid truth that he is faithful. And the Lord promises to reward that faithfulness with eternal crown of life. So when the Holy Spirit is at work in us, then we grow more and more in trusting and relying on God and being faithful in serving Him. And then there's also the other aspect, not just of being full of faith, but also of being faithful with respect to others, being trustworthy. Because as we're full of faith towards God, as we're trusting, as we're holding on to His promises, then that's going to make us look different. That faithfulness of His will permeate our lives, and we're going to reflect it to others. And so the commitments that we have, the commitment we have to our spouse, where we've made promises, even unto death, to be faithful, the promises we've made before God to bring up our children in the fear of the Lord, the promises that we've made in our work situation, whatever promises, whatever covenants, whatever contracts, whatever agreements, whatever word we give, we keep it. Because we are temples of the living God. Because it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so for me as a Christian, to say one thing and do another, to promise something and not fulfill it, is for me to blaspheme the very character of my Savior. And to deny the truth and the power of the gospel. That's why, children, your parents make a big deal about it when you promise to do something and you don't. When dad says, cut the grass by supper time, and then after supper, you look out the window and the grass still isn't cut. Your parents make a big deal about that because it has to do with your character and with your growth in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a spiritual question, not just a practical one. You see, when people interact with us Christians, they ought to have a solid, rock-solid assurance that we are who we say we are, that we do what we say we will do. Think of Psalm 15. speaks about the godly person, the person that can live and dwell in the house of the Lord. It is a person who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He makes a promise. He keeps it even when it hurts, even when it's inconvenient, even when it causes him suffering. So parents, as we're bringing up our children in the Lord, we're not looking for the obedience that comes from external legalism. That's not good enough. 
We're not looking for a child that outwardly does all the right things and pushes all the right buttons. But children, what your parents are looking for is that the Holy Spirit would be working in your heart. Faithfulness. That you, out of a changed heart, out of, out of yourself, you want to be like Christ. You want to be a person who is faithful, who is trustworthy, who reflects in some measure that rock solidity, which is the solidity that God gives to us. And so, that's something that we need to seek from God. It is a gift of God. That's the faithfulness aspect that we've just looked at. Let's move on to the next word, gentleness. Faithfulness, gentleness. And let's first of all turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 to have a look at how Paul connects this word to our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.1, which is on page 969 or 968. Rather, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Now, the funny thing about translations is that it's hard to do. It's very hard to translate. Those of you who know several languages know it's not easy. And the interesting thing here is that the word from our text, gentleness, is not that second word there, gentleness, in verse 1 of chapter 10. That's a different Greek word. But the Greek word of our text is translated here by the word meekness. So Greek has a bunch of different words which kind of have the idea of gentleness. But the word we're looking at this morning is the word here translated as meekness. The meekness of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I think for many of us, especially us men, I'm not sure that we want to be meek. Meek, if you say meek, you think of as meek as a mouse. You think of someone who is weak, someone who is a milksop, who is a, is a pushover. And no one wants to be like that, and especially men. They, they want to be weak and a, and a pushover. Is that what God's asking us to do? Is, is that what the Spirit makes us to be? Well, we have to look at what the Scripture says and how the Scripture understands this word. These last two words in our text, gentleness and self-control, are not so much aspects or attributes of God as God, but they are more focused on the character of Christ as God incarnate, as true man, as the last Adam, as the, the head of the new human race. So, so meekness is not something which can be predicated of God as God, but it is something which belongs to Christ in his office as true man and as the Messiah. Gentleness and self-control, both of those apply to him uh, in his office as Messiah in his perfect humanity. And the scriptures prophesy about this. Turn to Zechariah 9 verse 9. Zechariah is right at the end of the Old Testament, and it's on page 797. Zechariah 9.9 on page 797. And look, look what the, the scriptures, what the Holy Spirit prophesies about our Lord Jesus Christ. And see if you can find the word gentle or meek. It's translated differently again, but it's the same Greek word in the Greek Old Testament here. 
in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, meek, gentle. That's the Greek word behind this in the Greek Old Testament. And mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it's describing the Lord Jesus Christ, and particularly a prophecy here, here of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as the great king. And he comes as someone who is gentle, who is meek, who is humble, and yet he comes as a triumphant king. Your king is coming to you. And look what he's going to do in verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is not meek as a mouse. This is a strong meekness, a meekness with power, a meekness which puts an end to violence and wickedness and establishes peace and justice. That is the meekness, the gentleness of Christ. It is not a self-seeking, a self-aggrandizing kind of attitude. He doesn't come in as a king saying, look at me, I'm the best. No, he comes in as a king who is humble, who is righteous, who is gentle, who has this strong and deep and powerful commitment not to seek his own interests, but the interests of others. This is the king who said to us, I came to serve, not to be served. And you see that in Psalm 45, prophesied again of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Psalm 45 for a second, and you'll see this being prophesied about the Lord Jesus. Psalm 45, verse 4, page 471. This is a messianic psalm speaking about the Lord Jesus as the great king. In your majesty, Psalm 45, verse 4, in your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness. That's the same word again, meekness, gentleness, humility, and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. And now look at verse 5. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. So that the meekness of our powerful king is not opposed to his strength in conquering and uh, getting rid of sin and evil and wickedness. So that's what the word looks like as a description of the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then what does the scripture say? Well, the scripture says that this characteristic of our Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit works in those who believe. So turn to Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. Galatians, Ephesians verse 1 and 2 that's on page 977 and look if you can find the word children the word from our text it's actually uh, translated the same way in this verse these verses I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what it looks like. When we live in a manner worthy of our calling, that's what it looks like. The more we know the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what it looks like. We don't insist on our own way. 
We don't flex. We don't throw out our chests and intimidate. We don't bulldoze. We don't impose. We don't try to push other people around physically or verbally. We are gentle. We give way. We know it's not about us. It's about him. And if we all live like that, then there is no conflict in the people of God. Even if we have to deal with hard questions where there are disagreements and there are a hundred different opinions, there will be no conflict because we have the Spirit and the Spirit works in us the gentleness, the meekness of Christ. That's the communion of saints. And then our community around us will notice it. And then people that we interact with in social media will notice it. That we're meek. That we're gentle. And that is something that we are clothed with. Look at Colossians 3, verse 12 and 13 for a moment. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Which is on page 984. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Remember that meekness is not being a milksop, it's not being a little mouse, it's not being a pushover. It means that you sometimes have the right, and you have the power and the strength to impose. But you say, that's not what it's about. It's not about me, it's not about my way, it's not about what I want. It's about God it's about my brother and my sister. And so that characterizes the way we interact in the Spirit. If you turn to 2 Timothy 2 for a second, 2 Timothy 2, 24. And that's on page 996. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 and 25. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. There's that word again, with meekness, with humility. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Now, this is specifically aimed at the leaders in the church at those of us who are office bearers, but we ought to be giving an example to all of the flock in that gentleness and meekness. So what does it mean? Well, it means, elders, that when we come to deal with someone who is not walking in God's ways and who is embracing sin, we don't come roaring into that visit like Moses coming down off Mount Sinai. That's not what we do. We come to those who are erring. We come as the greatest of all sinners. Like Paul says, I am the worst of all sinners. That's the attitude we come with, with meekness. Now, we have a lot of power. We've got the power of the Holy Word of God. We've got the power of the discipline of the church. We've got the power and the demand of God that we exclude from the congregation those who love sin. But we come with meekness, and we Plead with sinners to turn to Christ and 
live. And we do that because that is what our Savior tells us he does. And we're his representatives, aren't we? Matthew eleven twenty nine. Matthew eleven twenty nine, which is on page eight sixteen. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, says our Savior. Now look at this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. There it is again, that same word. And lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Brothers and sisters, not just the elders, but when we as congregation are exercising mutual discipline, we don't come roaring into each other's homes and lives and say, you've got to smarten up and you've got to change this and you've got to be better at that. No, we come in the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ with all meekness and humility and gentleness. And so let's turn to Titus 3 now, verses 1 and 2, and see again the apostle reminding us of this. Remind them, that's the congregations, to be submissive to rulers and authorities. This is on page 998, Titus 3, verse 1. To be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, that's the word again, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. So not just the elders, but all of us are called to be gentle, to be meek, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Is that what people can say about the way I interact with others on the internet? That's a good question for us to think about. Because this is the way we used to be. Look at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So in that dumpster fire, which is the internet commentary section of whatever site you're looking at, that's the kind of stuff you see, right? The, you see the, the passions and the, and the anger and the conflict and the malice and the envy and the hate. And not just on the internet, but in real life, God's people need to be preaching the gospel through our attitudes, through our words, through our lives, through the way we treat other people. And you know, we don't have time to go deeper into this because it actually, we could have a whole sermon just on this word. But if we want to exercise and delight in this aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, we need to understand who we are before God. When we understand that we are humble, unworthy sinners before a holy God, that we have nothing that we have that we have not received, that we deserve nothing but eternal condemnation, that all of the things we have, all of the grace and all of the glory is purely because of God's sovereign good pleasure and mercy towards us in Christ. But we know what it is to meekly receive, to receive with meekness the implanted word. We know who we are and what we deserve. Then we can't go around mistreating others. Then we will easily be able to treat others with that same sweet gentleness with which the Lord Jesus treats us. But we have to move on. So we'll move on to the third word here, self-control. And this is a word which is not very common in the Scripture. 
It's very rare, actually. Paul speaks about it in Acts 24, 25, if you turn there. It's one of the few times we see it in the Greek New Testament. Acts 24, verse 25, which is on page 934, and he's, he's in custody, and he's conversing with Felix, and look at 24, 25 of Acts, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. So Paul was preaching the gospel, and it's interesting that the Holy Spirit summarizes the preaching as being talking about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. So self-control is a, a significant aspect or descriptor of what it means to follow Christ. Now, in Greek philosophy, the word was really big. The Greeks loved, in various philosophical movements uh, of the Greeks, they loved to, to delight in self-control or in temperance. And the Stoics were really good at this. They, they sought a life in which they could say no to their passions and desires. And they managed, to some degree, to live lives that were, on the outside at least, rather temperate, rather controlled. But you see, the problem, and the reason that the New Testament doesn't use this word too much, is that there is no real possibility of real self-control on the inside of a human being. It's not something we can have. The only hope that the sinner has is that there is Christ control, that I'm not in charge anymore, that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, because that's the question you see when it comes to self-control. The question is, is, who is in charge in your heart? Do your passions rule you, or do you rule your passions? Do your appetites rule you, or do you rule your appetites? You see, an animal, animal thinks, I want something, so I get it, in as much as an animal can think. They're moved by their desires and by their appetites. They don't stop and have a a philosophical discussion first about the ethics of what they're about to do. The dog sees a cookie on the table, and if nobody's around, the dog will probably eat it if the dog likes cookies. But so many humans live like animals. And it starts with Adam and Eve back in the garden. As they plunged into the abyss of sin, they gave way to animal desires. I want... I desire, I lust, I take, and damn the consequences. And see, the law can only put a facade on this incontinence. The law can only whitewash it, but can't change the problem on the inside. The law can cover it up with all kinds of rules, but the heart remains full of every kind of blast. And so the Lord Jesus accuses the Pharisees. He says, you're hypocrites because you clean the outside of the cup and the plate. You do all the outward rituals to make it look like you're clean, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. And that word self-indulgence is the opposite of the word in our text for self-control. You have no self-control in your hearts, and that's the problem, says Jesus to the Pharisees. One of the most important things we need to learn as we grow up and mature is how to say no to ourselves. As little children, the law says no to us through our parents. But there has to be a time when we've internalized the gospel, when we've internalized the law, 
when we begin to say no to ourselves and we develop self-control. But some people never get that. You sometimes meet people that are in their 60s or 70s. They've never learned self-control. They've never grown up, not even outwardly. And some parents have make the mistake of teaching the law rather than the gospel to their children. They think they're going to make their kids grow up like good Christian kids by making rule upon rule, precept upon precept, line upon line. And the entire scripture says that's not going to work. What will work? Well, look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. This is what's going to work. Titus 2, verse 11, Timothy, and then Titus right at the end there. Page 998, so Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What trains us to hate sin? What trains us to renounce wickedness and our worldly passions? What trains us to live self-controlled lives? Look at verse 11. The grace of God. That is our only hope, brothers and sisters. That God would do a sovereign and mighty work in, the, in our hearts and in the hearts of our children. Well, this, comes, this brings us to the end of the nine words that Paul uses to describe the fruit of the Spirit. And then he ends by saying, against such things, there is no law. You remember the context. The question is, how do you say no to evil and wickedness and wicked passions and wicked appetites? Does the law help to stop sin? And the entire book of Paul to the Galatians says, no, there's no hope in the law doing that. When you live in the flesh, you're in this constant barrage of judgment from the law, and the law says, stop this and stop that, and, and you're doing this wrong, and you're doing that wrong, and you've got to change, and you've got to be better. And it's like going down the highway the wrong way, and every sign is saying, stop, turn around, entrance prohibited, this is the wrong way. But when the Holy Spirit of God comes into our lives and turns us around, and we're heading in the right direction, and the law stops condemning us. And now the law is our friend, and now the law says, this is the way, proceed, keep going, because the law is written on our hearts, and the one who lives in our hearts is the one who fulfilled the law perfectly. And so legalism can't solve the problem. Every false religion, every philosophy out there makes the same mistake. Works, works, works. Don't do this. Do do that. And it's like telling a caterpillar, stop crawling, fly, stop eating leaves, drink nectar, rule upon rule, precept upon precept. The law wraps you up in a cocoon, trying to restrain your fleshly appetites and desires. And all the law can give you is more restriction and more guilt, but it can't change who you are and what you do. But then the gospel promises the change we need. 
The gospel declares to us that the Spirit of God transforms us. The Spirit of God changes who we are, and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ smashes us out of the, the suffocating restrictions of the law and makes us new people. And so the things that are natural to our new nature, there's no law against them. We have new tendencies. We have new desires. We have new appetites. We have new inclinations. And they're all good and holy and glorious because we live by the Spirit. So, brother, sister, if you're fighting some kind of sin, maybe you're fighting a whole bunch of sins, and maybe you're not winning. Maybe you're not seeing progress. Then I would say this. Stop trying to fight your sin with rules. There can be some band-aid solutions. If you're tempted by pornography, that you throw your computer away or put it in a public area in the house. That's a rule, and it can be helpful. But it's not going to change the problem because the problem is your heart. And that's what needs changing. And the only way that your heart can be changed is not through the law, not through more rules, but through the power of the Spirit of God. You need to plead with God. You need to say, Lord... I don't want to want that sin. I don't want to desire that sin. Take it out of my heart, O oh Lord. Change me. I don't want to be interested in the things of the flesh. Bring me to a place, O oh Lord, where seriously, I just have no desire whatsoever to even look at this thing which right now seems so precious and important to me. Now, this is not something that we accomplish through hard work. If you look at what Peter writes in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, he writes this, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We need the power of the Spirit of God to work in our hearts and lives. And the more you know Christ, and the more you know him who comes to dwell in you by his spirit, the more you're going to see this virtuous cycle of you hating sin and loving righteousness. And so I want to end this series on the fruit of the spirit by reminding you, you of where we come to meet Christ and how we get to know him better and where we get to be at the receiving end of these massive pipelines of God's grace and Holy Spirit, which he pours into our lives. It's in the church. In the world, it is in the church that God makes himself known, that God declares himself in the word and the sacraments. You know, if you've got a car and it's got an empty gas tank, it's not going to go anywhere, is it? You can want to go somewhere, but it's not going to get anywhere. You can kick it. You can hit it with a hammer. It's not going to make any difference. It won't move with no gas, with no power. With no fuel. Well, don't be surprised if you are neglecting the means of grace. If you're being inconsistent with your attendance in public worship. If you're not in the holy word of God every day, reading it and studying it and devouring it. If you're not spending time in prayer. If you're not gassing up. If you're not filling your tank. Don't be surprised that you're not getting anywhere in your journey of sanctification.
brothers and sisters, his divine power grants us everything necessary for godliness through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where do we get to know Christ more? Right here. In the church of Christ, the word, the sacraments and prayer, the means of grace, there's the power, there's the knowledge, that's where we come to meet Christ, that's where the Spirit comes and feeds us with Christ, this is the workshop of the Holy Spirit, this is where new life is initiated and cultivated and nurtured and nourished by the Spirit of God. There is no other way to deal with sin and brokenness, hurt, shame, guilt, misery, all the consequences of sin, there's no other way but by the Spirit of Christ. Now, where do we find him? Well, look at Psalm 84, stanza 5. We're going to sing that in just a few minutes. We find him in the temple, don't we? That's where the presence of God is, in the temple. Lord, Lord, one day in your dwelling place is better than a thousand days outside the courts of your salvation. I'd much rather stand and wait as humble servant at your gate, the threshold of your habitation, than far from there to dwell within the tents of wickedness and sin. In other words, God, you know, I'd rather be no one in the church than the greatest celebrity in the world. Because in the church of Christ, in the temple of the living God, the habitation of the Spirit, the courts of God's salvation, it is here in the church, through the church, that he speaks into my life the life-transforming power of the knowledge of Christ. He pours into my heart the renewing power of the age to come. He transforms me from glory to glory after the image of Christ, his Son. Amen.